Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Broad Eye Podcast. My name is Sean Maloney, and I'm here today with my good friend and co-host, Dr. Bruno Fernandez. Bruno, how are we doing today? Doing great, Sean. Like, how's it going? Ah, I can't complain. Uh, we're going to dive into a really interesting topic with our guest today, but first I can introduce her. Her name is Dr. Sutha Nalasami. She's an assistant professor at the Keck School of Medicine and a pediatric ophthalmologist at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. Dr. Nalasami, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you for having me. Ah, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. So, um, so we're going to talk about uh, a couple of things today, but I was hoping maybe to kick it off with a description of strabismus. Um, as a pediatric, pediatric ophthalmologist, I'm sure you see a lot of strabismus, and I'm wondering if you can maybe just explain to the audience what strabismus is and uh, how you might explain that condition to patients, uh, young or old, and if in the case of young patients, how you might explain that to their parents. Right, so strabismus is um, the general term for eye misalignment, which means that the eyes are not straight, and so they're not working together. Um, and in some cases, that drifting of the eyes occurs only some of the time, but in other cases, there's a constant eye turn. Um, there are more specific terminology. So um, for example, the most common um, types of strabismus are um, esotropia and exotropia. So esotropia means crossing in of the eyes. Eso means crossing. And then outward deviation um, is described as exotropia, where the eyes go out. Um, and so you can also have vertical deviations as well. But um, in simple terms, strabismus is just um, basically that the eyes are not straight. And so that means that they're not working together. They're working one at a time. Um, during those times when the eyes are constantly deviated. And how common is that in children? And, uh, and then uh, how, how are those children usually treated? So strabismus occurs in about 2 to 5% of the general population. And actually, in many cases, glasses may help. So glasses for farsightedness can help for some children whose eyes cross and glasses for nearsightedness or um, sometimes astigmatism can help for children whose eyes drift outward. Um, however, in about 5% of uh, patients with strabismus, surgery is ultimately required. So is that only for kids? Because I think strabismus can affect adults too, right? Right. So strabismus um, in the childhood population is a little bit higher, but in the overall um, population, um, the rate is about two to 5%. Um, so yes, um, some adults who have strabismus have had it since they were a kid. Um, and some patients even need multiple surgeries over the course of their life, because even if the first surgery worked, there might be drifting again, and they might need another surgery later on. Um, but then there are other adults who um, have acquired strabismus um, that they um, have as an adult where they never had any problems as a child, but then um, they might have a neurologic issue or um, a thyroid um, eye disease um, that's caused by um, hyperthyroidism, Graves' disease. Um, so um, strabismus can be um, acquired in adults, but it could also be um, kind of 
um, childhood strabismus that's um, still affecting them as adults. No, that that's uh, interesting to understand and that they could be associated with some of these diseases. Now, in the case of uh, addressing strabismus in children, let's go back to children, uh, what are some of the, why is it so important to have a timely diagnosis for kids with strabismus and timely diagnosis and or intervention? So for very young children, a timely diagnosis is, is really extremely important. Um, so from birth until about two years of life, the brain is still developing and it's trying to understand how to use the eyes together um, to see in three dimensions. Um, so that's called stereo vision. So the brain's ability to use the eyes together to see um, 3D. Um, the eyes have to be straight and you have to have good vision in both eyes in order to have um, depth perception and in infants under two years of age with a constant deviation, the sooner surgery is performed, the better chance of the brain developing high grade depth perception. So the longer you wait for surgery, the less of a chance of developing binocularity, um, which is the ability of, of um, using the eyes together. So um, for those young, young kids, it's super important to diagnose them as quickly as possible. But even for kids up to seven or eight years of age, the brain is still developing an understanding of the visual input from each eye separately. So in children under eight years of age with strabismus, there's also a risk of amblyopia. So amblyopia is a condition where the brain tunes out the eye. In cases of strabismus, the brain will often choose one eye to use primarily since it's having trouble keeping the eyes straight. So the child will look at things with one eye most of the time while the other eye is deviated. And this creates a problem because in childhood, the brain is still developing, trying to understand the information coming from each eye. And so if it starts relying on input mostly from one eye, it starts tuning out the other eye. Um, so basically, it's not developing strong enough connections with that other eye. Um, and this results in reduced vision in the deviated eye, um, which is called amblyopia. And this condition needs to be treated with patching in order to stimulate the brain to start using that deviated eye again. And amblyopia um, can be really hard to treat in older children, but it's very responsive to treatment in younger children. So this is another reason why um, it's important to diagnose these kids early. Um, and then and for kids of school age, strabismus can also come with a significant psychosocial burden as well. Um, so difficulty maintaining eye contact, for example, makes it um, harder to make friends. Um, children with strabismus often get picked on and can feel very self-conscious. They can even get depressed or anxious about the appearance of their eyes. Um, so we also don't want children to have to go through those experiences for an extended, extended period of time. So that's another reason why um, timely treatment is important. And uh, besides being a disease in itself, strabismus can also be a, a symptom of uh, other diseases in the eye, right? Correct. So again, um, strabismus could be a symptom of um, something much more serious, for example, um, even retinoblastoma or retinal detachment or something in the back of the eye um, and that's causing uh, poor vision. So um, another reason why um, diagnosing children in a timely way is very important. Um, so yes, great point. Uh, 
changing subject a bit, I really want to talk about uh, one of your recent publications in the British Journal of Ophthalmology, uh, where you highlight the importance of uh, telemedicine. And so before we, we dive into the conclusions of the study itself, uh, could you help us define like what exactly telemedicine is for the lay public? Yes, so telemedicine is really the practice of medicine using technology to deliver care at a distance. So basically a physician in one location uses telecommunication technology to deliver care to a patient at a different location. Sorry, I'm going to jump in and just piggyback on what Bruno was saying there. <laughs> and I want to know the conclusions of your study. So no, I, I, I'm going to, I already know the conclusions of your study, but the audience wants to know the conclusions of the study. So maybe you can just uh, give us an idea of uh, when you set out to do this study, what was the purpose of it? Uh, what were you trying to, um, you know, tease out or demonstrate? And what were the findings that made the study uh, interesting to publish in the British Journal of Ophthalmology, which is obviously a, a, a high impact uh, journal in the field. Thank you so much. Um, so basically what we were uh, finding, so at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, um, we see a lot of underserved patients. Um, so um, we were having a lot of difficulty getting those patients in in a timely manner. So our wait for a new patient appointment was literally like seven to nine months. Um, and so um, this, this created a huge problem um, because we really, like we were just talking about, we really wanna make sure that the patients who really need to be seen um, quickly are getting seen in that timely fashion. So we explored telemedicine as really a solution um, to that problem. So um, we decided to employ um, an optometrist out in more remote areas um, to um, facilitate examinations that could be viewed via telemedicine by our ophthalmologist. So basically the optometrist would see um, a lot of patients and only if she needed help with a specific patient, um, then she um, could use telemedicine as kind of a direct line to the ophthalmologist. And so this, this really um, uh, was able to help us to um, improve access. So in terms of our study, we um, enrolled 210 um, patients in our study um, and over 210 new patient exams. We examined the patients both via telemedicine as well as um, in person. And essentially we were able to demonstrate that we could very reliably um, manage pediatric ophthalmic conditions with our telemedicine system. Um, not a single management plan had to be changed um, and not a single primary diagnosis had to be changed based on the in-person exam. There were a few non-primary diagnoses that changed based on the in-person exam, but um, they um, did not affect management plans. Um, they were not um, visually significant issues. Um, so th that was the main conclusion. And I think one of the most striking things that we found was that we were able to obtain very accurate strabismus measurements for surgical planning without the patient ever having to be seen in person prior to surgery. And I thought that to me was um, very um, striking and important and could also show the patient's that they could have confidence in the system too. So uh, just to be clear, so who is examining the patients then? Like, is it a optometrist? It must be like a trained professional. 
Um, correct. So in our study, we had a pediatric optometrist on the patient side um, who facilitated the exam. And that exam was simultaneously being viewed by myself remotely. It was being streamed. And our optometrist wore smart glasses with an HD camera at the nasal bridge for the strabismus exam. Um, she also used digital ophthalmic equipment, um, such as a digital slit lamp and a digital indirect ophthalmoscope to look at the internal structures of the eye. And all of this was simultaneously streamed to me. I was a physician in the study viewing the exams. And I was viewing on a large monitor and I could also help guide the exam if needed, um, tell her to look at certain things more closely or repeat certain parts of the exam. Um, or in the case of um, strabismus measurements, you know, go to a different prism to enhance the measurements. That's, that's, that's super cool like that you can see it live. Uh, so in, in terms of equipment that it's needed, like you touched on a few already. So you have a, like this, this eyeglasses mounted camera and, and also the, the ophthalmological instruments are, are all hooked. So what else do you need? Like, I guess mostly the pretty fast and reliable internet connection as well. Yes, for sure. And um, we use Polycom um, codecs, which um, basically there was a codec on the patient side as well as a codec on the ophthalmologist side. Um, and so it was a wired video conferencing system. Um, we had tried software systems um, previously, but the quality was just not good enough to obtain the fine, you know, minute eye movements that um, we um, we need to be able to detect for strabismus measurements. Um, so that's why we had to use an actual um, physical conferencing um, system. And does it take too long for the personnel to become familiar using all that new equipment? So yes, there is a bit of a learning curve at the beginning as you might expect with any technology. And it's really, um, that learning curve was for the optometrist on the patient side who had to use the equipment and stream the exam. Um, so um, we did find that the smart glasses were by far the easiest to use, also the most inexpensive and the most useful piece of equipment in our study, mainly because the majority of our patients had um, strabismus and that's how we examined those patients. So this, the smart glasses were actually very easy to use. The digital slit lamp was relatively easy. The most difficult piece of equipment was the digital indirect ophthalmoscope just because um, what was seen on the screen, what was recorded um, in terms of the video recording was not always exactly what the optometrist was seeing on the exam. And so there was a little bit of a learning curve and I, I would have to guide her to get um, things into focus um, on the actual video. So it did mean that the patients did have to endure slightly longer examinations, especially early on in the study. But um, since we worked really well together, that um, learning curve was really for maybe the first 15, 20 patients. And then after that, um, we kind of got into a nice rhythm. Um, so yeah. So just talking about um, strabismus, maybe uh, continuing along that line and telemedicine. So what are your hopes now like what do you anticipate that you know the study has shown that you can accurately uh, diagnose strabismus and the management plans don't change whether they were in person or uh, via telemedicine so what do you envision as the next steps do you need to collaborate with 
uh, you know, remote locations to make this a reality? Do you need to provide specific training? Um, I guess, yeah, what, what do you envision as the next steps? Um, so, yeah, so in terms of next steps, we've actually done them um, at CHLA. Basically, we've um, collaborated with external sites and sent our pediatric optometrists um, out to these sites. Um, and we've actually built out like a telemedicine lane um, at those sites. So all the telemedicine equipment is there and um, our ophthalmologist is um, on at the main hospital um, viewing the exams and providing those consultations. So the optometrists are at these sites um, a few days a week. And if there's any patient that they um, uh, think needs um, a higher level of care, they have, or potentially might even need surgery, then um, we have telemedicine um, slots blocked off in the ophthalmologist's um, uh, basically in their schedule so that um, they'll be available during those times. And so they have a direct connection um, to us. And we've found that it definitely improves access for these patients. And um, it's actually improved surgical volume for the ophthalmologists too, even though they're cutting out um, potential time that could be um, used to see a lot more patients in person. I see like next step, the next step that I'm trying to work on is um, not have to rely on a completely hardwired system. Like we were talking about having that video conferencing system that is not software based, um, that can be kind of expensive. So in order to reduce the expense, I would eventually like to move over to a fully software based system. And as our broadband technology improves over time, um, that will be a possibility in the not too distant future. And the are you using that for like regular ophthalmological consultations and also to manage diseases other than strabismus or it has been specific for this uh, condition? So um, we've used it for any eye condition in children. Um, so the most uh, common diagnosis that we see is strabismus. Um, however, um, our telemedicine system can help in the diagnosis of eyelid abnormalities, glaucoma, cataracts, retinal abnormalities. Um, in our study, we, um, we did not see every single eye condition, um, but we also did not find any specific conditions which we could not see appropriately enough to make a diagnosis or management plan. So yeah, I think um, it's very versatile. Um, and if uh, we had talked about use, using all the different types of equipment and um, really the smart glasses is the most inexpensive piece of equipment. And so if you wanted to start off smaller, then the smart glasses would be a great way um, to go because um, most pediatric ophthalmologists are primarily um, seeing strabismus as their you know, most common diagnosis. Um, so it, it would be, um, easier to implement if you start with just one one of those pieces of equipment. And I'm thinking, you know, that leads to a good point just about uh, accessibility here, right? In the sense mm -hmm. that by oftentimes, I mean, not always, but oftentimes if you're trying to serve remote populations, they just don't have the same resources as major urban centers, right? So starting off with a small piece of equipment uh, and being able to diagnose at least certain types of ophthalmic conditions might be a, you know, a great 
stepping stone into that that space. Um, do you see any limitations of the telemedicine approach that um, you know people have to be aware of, or can you really uh, you know address just about at least in ophthalmology, do you, can you really, um, perform, you know, get as much information from the telemedicine exam with someone on the opposite end uh, or on the other end of the connection who's appropriately trained as you can in the clinic? Yeah, so um, we kind of touched upon this earlier, but really the primary limitation of a real-time telemedicine system such as ours is the quality of a broadband connection, um, especially since we need to be able to see very minute eye movements for strabismus exams and also for looking at the in internal structures, we're trying to look at you know, very small parts of the eye. So, um, so that broadband con connection is really essential. And if you don't have a robust enough broadband connection, the streaming can be choppy and um, pre prevent accurate assessments. Um, so I would say that's really the, the main um, barrier. And so um, if we, you know, can set up um, centers where the broadband connection is really good, then there really shouldn't be um, too much in the way of limitations. Um, you know, um, one, one diagnosis that we didn't really um, include, um, have any patients in our study was uveitis. And so um, that's, a, that's a good question if that's even possible to diagnose because um, it's looking at um, little cells, um, microscopic cells in the anterior chamber of the eye. Um, I'm not sure if we can do, um, diagnose uveitis um, with our telemedicine equipment. We haven't um, looked at that. Um, but in terms of the other diagnoses, um, I don't see really any limitation as long as the broadband connection is strong enough. No, I think that's, uh, you know, certainly interesting. And it, it, like you said, uh, if the connection is there, then, you know, it seems like you can provide that, uh, that great level of service. And of course, with, with the rollout of 5G happening, you know, over in, in the years to, mm -hmm. to come, it's already started. But with that happening and infrastructure in place, it's only going to make this uh, work that you're doing, um, you know, much easier to do, I guess, and uh, and much more relevant. So, listen, I wanted to to thank you for you know coming on the podcast and sharing with us. Uh, you know, we came across your research article, and uh, both Bruno and I thought it was fascinating, and thought we uh, and very timely, of course. You know, we're we're in a pandemic, and everybody's looking at uh, you know remote work and and to the idea of telemedicine in general. And what you've done is really put a stamp on that in you know in this case to show that this is this is um, you know can can yield accurate diagnosis can be can be leveraged and uh, and certainly in the you know as time goes forward I think it'll get more and more adopted so um, I wanted a thank you for doing that research because I think it's it's just really an amazing research to to be done um, and B for uh, just coming on the podcast and sharing the story with everybody. Thank you so much. I mean, it makes me really um, happy to um, that people are interested in this work. And um, exactly, I just really want to um, make sure that we can make things more accessible, especially um, healthcare um, to those who are underserved. Um, and just like you said about the pandemic, really um, putting telemedicine into the spotlight. It's, um, I think, it's great. Um, the interesting thing, thing is that the pandemic kind of um, quickly forced us to switch to provider to patient telemedicine with the patient at home. And so um, 
for pediatric ophthalmology, it really like um, significantly limits the extent of the exam. It relies on um, parents to um, help conduct parts of the exam. And um, it's kind of like with school, um, with Zoom school and, and you know online schooling during the pandemic, it, it created further socioeconomic disparities for those families with core internet connections at home. And so the hope with our telemedicine model is really that um, we set up these centers, like, like I said, with robust broadband connections so that um, allied health professionals can facilitate those exams in remote locations. Um, and that's really the only way to serve the underserved because they're not going to have um, good enough connections at home for sure. Um, so um, the pandemic did highlight to all of us that importance of high quality broadband connections, and hopefully it will spur more and more innovation in this technology space, um, just like you were saying. Thank you so much again for inviting me, and it's it's really been a pleasure. Nah, listen, the pleasure is all ours, so thank you for, thanks for joining us today.